Christians believe in both submission and sedition. We submit to the governing authorities, but sedition flows from the ways that we submit to others. For Christians are submissive refugees. Submissive because God has appointed all authority in the world, but refugees because we are alienated from the world. We submit ourselves to the rulers and to the authorities, but the ways we live holds in question the very culture that these world authorities are upholding and promulgating and enforcing. That is, Christians have a love-hate relationship with the world. We love the physical creation and all its wealth and joys, but we do not live for its wealth and its joys. Like our materialistic and hedonistic society and culture around about us and our governments and their concern, ours are different. We live for the creator, not for the creation. As the old saying goes, we are in this world, but we are not of this world. We lovingly serve this world, but we do not love the world. And that is the kind of message that we have in this passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, page 1221, that you'll see and the green outline will be following through as we look at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, just as Judith read it for us a few moments ago. All this is apparent in this passage this morning. You'll find that as we look at it, you have this strange ambivalence about the world. But as we look at it, we mustn't be confused We mustn't confuse the trees and the forest for it's easy to find a whole set of difficulties in this passage but they are the trees, not the forest. The main message of the passage mustn't be lost as we examine phrases or clauses of particular verses that we don't understand. That is, as passages of the scriptures go, there are more difficult little verses in this per per chapter than I think anywhere else in the, in the New Testament. Let me show you five quickly that I'm not going to answer. But just so that I, you know, I know they're there and we'll go skating past them. You see, what does it mean in chapter 3 verse 18 when it says that Jesus was made alive in the spirit? Surely Jesus was made alive in the body, in the flesh. Did he not rise physically from the grave? What does it mean that he rose spiritually, made alive in the spirit? Or in chapter 3, verse 19, you'll see there's reference there to the spirits in prison. Well, who were the spirits in prison? And what was the prison that they were in? Or again in chapter 3, verse 19, we find that Jesus proclaims to the spirits in prisons. But what did he proclaim to them? And why did he proclaim to them? And was this a chance for them to get out of the prison or something else? Or in chapter 4, verse 1, over the page, you will see that he who has ceased, he who has suffered has ceased from sin. But who has ceased from sin? And why has he ceased from sin? And how do you cease from sin by suffering? Or in chapter 4, verse 6, it talks about the gospel being preached to the dead. And 
when was the gospel preached to the dead and why was it preached to the dead and this is a passage that gives Bible study groups endless hours of happy disagreement full of these kinds of strange little phrases and we could tend our time going through each of these questions and resolving or trying to resolve them but at the end of the examination of each of the trees have missed the forest completely. So I'm going for the forest. What's the passage about? Because that, I think, is much more straightforward than some of the answers to those questions. So if you've heard this passage read and thought, oh, good, at last I'm going to find out who the spirits in prison are, sorry to disappoint you, although I will give a nod and a wink on the way through as to what it's about. Some of the questions I'll be answering, but not all of them. So let's start with the first one, which there is something of an answer to, about the flesh and the spirit. For that is referred to in chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now what's the difference between the flesh and the spirit? For it's not the same as the body and the soul. It's not a contrasting of my inner spirit with my outer body, my outer flesh. It's not that kind of soul versus body distinction. For Jesus did not die in body and rise in soul. He died in body and soul. And he rose in body and soul. The complete man died, the complete man rose. Remember, the works of the flesh, back in Galatians 5, involve things like enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions and envy, in amongst the other things like sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality. That is, amongst the things that we would say were sins of the body, of the flesh, there are these things that are the sins that we would say are the sins of the Spirit. Envy, rivalry, dissensions. That is, the New Testament doesn't use the word flesh to mean the thing hanging off my bones. Hanging and sagging more as I get older, I've noticed. But it's, it's not that stuff that the flesh is talking of. No, in the New Testament, the flesh and the Spirit refer to this world and the next world. The flesh is life in this fallen, sinful world, inheriting the life and folly of Adam as we face certain death. But the spirit is the breath that comes from God. And so the spirit refers to life, especially God's life, life eternal. And so the flesh is your mortal life, dying here in this world, and the spirit is the life of the age to come that God enacts within us. For he, the spirit of God, was promised in the Old Testament to be coming with the Messiah to bring the new age and the kingdom of God. And so the spirit is of the age to come, while the flesh is the world in which we now live. Thus in verse 18, if you look at it, you will see that Christ was put to death in the flesh, in this world. But he was made alive in the spirit, that is, in the age to come, in the new world. 
from there, having risen to the set at his father's hand, he has received the promised Holy Spirit from his father and on the day of Pentecost poured out his spirit upon all flesh so that even in this world we might be brought to new life, new life that is eternal life, new life that is the age to come already now in experience. That is, eternal life is not something I get when I die. Eternal life is something I get when I'm born again by the Spirit of God. We're not born again into the life of the flesh. We're born again into the eternal life of the Spirit. Now, it is this spiritual work of Christ that is on view here at the end of 1 Peter 3 in the beginning of chapter 4. It's the spiritual work of the risen Christ that gives rise to the Christian kind of sedition in the way in which we live in the world while we're still in this flesh. Because now, as Christians, we receive the spirit of the age to come, we still are alive in the world of the flesh. And that conflict between our attitude to the world, that ambivalence we have to the attitude of the world, that actually is within ourselves as our flesh wages war with the new spirit that is within us. Jesus' death, you see, was not accidental. It was purposeful. Look at again verse 18. For he suffered for something. He suffered for our sins, the righteous in the place of the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That is what verse 18 is saying. The suffering we're talking of is his death. Notice how the first half of the verse talks about the suffering for sins and the second half just speaks of his death, for that is what is meant when it talks about suffering in the flesh. It means dying. By his death and resurrection, the bar to heaven was broken. It was lifted, it was shattered, so that we were brought to God. And in this new age, the age of the Spirit, Jesus was preaching. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. He proclaimed his victory over sin and death and Satan to the spirit world, especially those under condemnation and judgment. For Within the resurrection of Jesus came the judgment of the world. The beginning of the end, for death was defeated and sin was overcome and Satan was overthrown and we who were unrighteous could now be brought to the righteous God. And so we could appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ who now sits in all power and authority. Look at the end of verse 21 there where it describes him that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers having been subjected to him. All the powers of the universe, the visible ones that we can see in Macquarie Street and Canberra and Washington and Moscow and London and the invisible ones that we do not see, the powers of Satan and angels and authorities, they are all now brought under subjection, under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is now Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the ruler of rulers who reigns supreme over all the powers and authorities of the universe. 
For in the resurrection of Jesus, he is ruling over all the universe. At the right hand of God, as it says there, with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. This is so important to remember, friends, when we're suffering unjustly, especially at the hands of those set over us to whom we have to submit. We do not enter into the worldly sedition of revolution and rebellion. Christians are not called upon to change governments. Why? Well, because we know that all the rulers are appointed by God and under the lordship of Jesus. Both the good ones and the evil ones, they're all subjected to him. We do not have to overthrow the government because we know that Jesus is their government that Jesus is now king of all the kings, president of all the presidents if you're a republican, lord of all the lords if that is how you want to talk. He's the ruler over all the rulers of the universe. All powers, all authorities, physical and spiritual, are under his feet and that is why we can subject ourselves and submit ourselves to any of them. But it's also why he will be judging the world. Look at chapter 4, verse 5, chapter 4, verse 5 over the page, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. It is God who judges the world, but in the Old Testament, the Old Testament was looking forward to the day when a man, the son of man, would be given all authority to judge the world on the great day of judgment. And the New Testament speaks boldly of Jesus being given all judgment. Jesus himself says in John 5.25, Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The day of judgment is for all that are in the flesh, and all that are in the spirit as well. For this world and the world to come, he is the judge of the living and of the dead. For he has risen from the dead and now sits at the right hand of God in the world to come. When Paul was preaching the gospel in Athens, he concluded his sermon by saying, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. So here having been raised in the spirit Jesus proclaims his victory as he entered into heaven to sit at God's right hand in all authority over everything, to rule the world, to judge the living and the dead.
And that's why the gospel is being preached to people who have already died. Previous generations who now are in the tombs awaiting that day of resurrection heard the gospel of their salvation because the gospel is not just for our generation, it's for every generation. It's not just for this lifetime, it's for the future and the world to come. For Jesus' victory is not just about this life, but the life to come. It's not just about how we live now, but also how we die. It's not just for the here and now, but for there and then. It's not about the, it is about the final judgment of the world for even if we still die in this flesh, we will live like God in the spirit. And it is this knowledge of Jesus' spiritual work that brings about Christian sedition. Even while, especially while we're still here in the flesh, in this world. For if you are a Christian, you will not be living under the powers and principalities of this world that you submit to. Neither the powers of the flesh, nor the powers of the spirit. But under the Lord who rules over them all. For our Lord has suffered in the flesh and risen in the spirit. And this he does to bring us to God. We no longer live in opposition to God if we are Christians. We're no longer alienated from him, ignoring him in our lives, hating him because he makes us feel guilty or plunging ourselves into decadence and degeneracy. We no longer tell lies about him, worshipping him by dumb and deaf, lifeless statues and idols and rejecting his work of creation, following the New Age spirituality of the New Age magicians, we no longer live in rebellion against him, thinking of our puny morality as good enough to please God or thinking of our religion will safely see us through. Jesus' death for our sins is what brings us to God. For we who are dead in our sins and trespasses have been made alive by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has paid for all our sins, turning God's righteous anger away from us and bringing us into the very presence of God our Father, into the very presence of the family of God. And thus by his death and resurrection, we make our appeal to God for a clear conscience in baptism. No longer are we condemned by that still small voice that speaks with the lying tones of the accuser, Satan, speaking the truth, though he is a liar, the truth that we cannot stand, the truth that we are guilty, vile and helpless, in the presence of the holy and righteous God, no longer are we condemned by that voice because we know the voice is the voice of the ancient liar. We know and believe the voice because his accusations are true, but our conscience doesn't condemn us because we know that the penalty has been paid. The victory has been made. His accusations are no longer the accusations that will stand in the court because the Lord Jesus Christ stands for us. 
For something now different has happened for us. Now we can be baptised into the death of Jesus. Now we can take his death for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. We can remove the stain of sin from our conscience, just like we remove dirt from our bodies with water, so we are washed clean in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. For just as Noah was saved through water, by the judgment that destroyed the rest of humanity, so we can be saved through the baptismal waters by the judgment that fell on the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, knowing that we're forgiven through the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that the risen Lord Jesus now rules the universe, we are to be armed with the thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, and not the way the world is, we are to think differently. We have to be armed with the thoughts of Jesus that by suffering from sin, he was putting sin to death. We know that the wages of sin is death and when we die, sin has no more rule over our lives. You see, death is not the end of life. Death is the end of sin. Life goes on into the judgment of God. It's not the end of our life. It's the end of sin. Jesus suffered. He died a death he did not need to die. He died and so put an end to sin. And this is the kind of thinking we need to have. We need to arm ourselves with to be able to live in this lifetime, in the flesh, no longer for human passions, as he says in verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. If you have this mind, the understanding that death is the end of sin, not the end of life, then your attitude to sin your attitude to life, your attitude to death, your attitude to how you should live changes completely. If death is all there is, then let's eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. But if death is the punishment for sin, if death is the end of sin, if those who have died no longer sin, then sin is the thing that we need to struggle with in this lifetime. Not living not avoiding death. And so he says the time's past to think and act like the Gentiles. The time's past to think and act like the nations. The time's past to, to think and act like Australians. It's over. The world and its ways of operating are coming to an end. Evil has been defeated. Death has been defeated. We're no longer to live the way the world lives. We're no longer to follow the pattern of the world that you see in verse 3 of chapter 4. The time is past, suffices, for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. That way of life 
is still on display every Saturday night as the police struggle to keep control of George Street and Bathurst Street and Jewett Street right here around about us. It is really a very questionable thing. They've had to bring in a new riot squad to control the degeneracy of the city of Sydney on a Saturday night in our very precinct here. That way of life is still on display in the rancid pornography of movies and TV shows, of magazines and websites that poison the very minds and lives of our people. It's still in display in the appalling abuse of substances from pot to heroin and most of all alcohol, especially amongst young teenagers, their brains are not yet fully developed. We know it damages their very life and their very thinking processes for the rest of their lives and yet our government will not say no to the promotion of this substance that is poisoning our young people. That, that way of life, you see, is... It's still on display in the terrible materialistic greed of our society, the rampant and ostentatious living. While millions of people in this world are hungry and starving, Australia looks after Australians. No, the time is past, my Christian friends. Time is past to live like Australians. As we become Christians... Our old friends, you see, will be surprised and we will be maligned by them for they cannot stand that we will not continue with them and join them in their various forms of debauchery. They will attack us and say all manner of evil things against us because we have a different culture, we have a different set of values, a different lord and master, a different death and a different afterlife. I notice, though I haven't followed it closely at all, that the Salvation Army have been forced in this last week or so to apologise for insulting sex workers, which is the new political correct term for prostitutes. Now, friends, I understand that many of the prostitutes of our cities are the victims of terrible crime and injustice. And I understand that the real perpetrators and criminals are not so much the prostitutes but the men who employ them and the men who use them. But no amount of political correctness is going to get me to say that prostitution is a good thing and that we shouldn't rejoice that Salvation Army have been rescuing people out of this terrible imprisonment. But such is the nature of our society that an organisation of such value and virtue as the Salvation Army have to apologise for suggesting that prostitution is bad and rescuing some from prostitution is a good thing. Such is the perversion of values that they will malign an organisation with such value to society as the Salvation Army. Some years ago, there were two young lawyers on the make here in Sydney are an interesting couple of fellows, attractive, successful, athletic, and a little bit of heartthrobs. They were heavily into money-making and they were even heavier into spending money, especially with wine and women, wherever, whenever, whoever they could. One went to study in England for a year, the other stayed in Sydney, and during that time the one in Sydney was converted. 
When his return friend returned from England, he rang his mate wanting to go out on the town to pick up a couple of girls and get back in the game. But the recently converted man said no, he didn't do that anymore. He didn't live that way anymore. In fact, he said, we don't have anything in common anymore. The lawyer who had just landed back from England could not believe what he was hearing. Attacked and got stuck into this man as to what on earth had happened to him, what was wrong. He said, look, we don't have anything in common and hung up. So the English one, I'll call him, rang back and said, let's go out to lunch, let's at least catch up and laugh about old times. And But the Christian said, no, we have nothing in common anymore and farewelled him and put down the phone. This is not a lesson on how to win friends and influence people or evangelise your friends. He'd only been a Christian a little while, but he'd walked out of the pit of darkness into the brightness of the light of eternity. And he wanted nothing more to do with the stench that his life had been lived in. Well, it really irritated the non-Christian, who persisted and pestered the Christian, till in the end the new Christian came clean and said, Look, I'm going to heaven and you're going to hell. We have nothing in common and hung up. Well, immediately the other one rang back and said, if I'm going to hell, what can I do about it? Can't you even talk to me about it? And the new Christian said, no, I can't even talk to someone going to hell, but Philip Jensen can. (laughs) I don't know what that says about me. And so I received this very strange telephone call from a complete stranger who said, hello, my name is, and he said, I'm my friend so-and-so, and I'm going to hell, and he can't talk to me about it, but he says, you can. And so we did. And he too came out of the darkness into the marvellous light of the new world of the Spirit. Christianity is therefore submissive and yet strangely seditious. We undermine the culture of every civilization in part by our submission to all those in authority over us because we do not preach revolution and rebellion. We don't have to preach that because we know who's in charge already. The Lord Jesus Christ is the King. But we do preach a totally different set of values and behaviour that completely different attitude to life and death and suffering and persecution. For we know that Jesus suffered and in his suffering he defeated death. So we have that mind that he had that death is not as important as sin. Better to suffer for doing good than to do evil. And that, of course, is the fundamental mind of the martyr, isn't it? The person who would choose suffering for good rather than to do evil. And when you have that mind... 
You cannot be ultimately bullied into the world's corruption for you would rather live differently as you serve as a model citizen in your kingdom but living so differently as to undermine that culture. Now your temptation, my temptation, friends, is either to be seduced by the world or to give way to fear of what the world may do to us. And so tomorrow, the day after, next week, sometime when people at work or within the family or in the neighbourhood invite you to do something that you know you don't want to do, you know you're not comfortable with, you know it's wrong. The temptation is twofold, isn't it? To be seduced into doing that which you know is wrong or to be afraid of the consequences of standing back and saying, no, I don't think I want to do that. And because we're fearful or because we're seduced, we go against conscience. But remember, the Lord Jesus Christ has died for our sin. And he is alive and rules over all we have nothing to be afraid of. Because even in our suffering, we are but sharing in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we do not live for this world, but for the world to come. So in this world... We now live, as he says at the end of verse 2, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. But you have to understand the gospel to live like that. You have to see death is the end of sin, not the end of life, to live like that. The Apostle Paul was in prison facing a very high probability of death and he wrote to his friends and says whether I'm going to be released or whether I'm going to die I don't know but it matters little for me to live is Christ to die is gain so what can they do to me Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that he did suffer for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to you. We thank you, Father, that as he rose into the world to come, into the spirit world, that he indeed poured out your spirit into our lives here in the flesh, that we would no longer live in the old ways but the new. We do pray, Father, in the struggles of life that we go through, when we feel the alienation from the world, we feel the outsiders and feel different, that you would enable us by your Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, not to give way to fear, nor to be seduced into doing evil, but that we might stand firm choosing suffering for doing that which is right rather than doing that which is wrong. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.